Thank you all for coming and spreading out nicely so I can pan the room where I need to. So um, let's have a word of prayer this morning and then we will get started. And did everybody get in the notes? If they want them, they're out on the podium out there. Okay. I just wanted to make sure everybody knew. So let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer and we will get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, another opportunity to come together, um, to gather as your people, Lord, uh, not only for this hour, but for the, the fellowship time in between um, and uh, the worship service later. Uh, Lord, we so look forward to each week being able to come together and see one another and fellowship with one another, to hear from your word, to sing praises to you. Um, we're just so grateful for that privilege. We thank you, and we thank you, Lord, for how you have preserved your word, how you've uh, preserved your church and continue to build your church throughout the centuries, Lord. And as we are a part of that now and benefiting from that and all those who came before us, we're so grateful. And as we um, are finishing up this series, Lord, I pray that we will see the importance of your word in our lives, your, the importance of your word in the church, that we would adhere to that, Lord, that we would crave it, that we would um, desire to live our lives upon your perfect and infallible word. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> All right, so this will be our, sort of our last main lesson in this study. I think Bubba mentioned last week that uh, next week we'll spend some time kind of wrapping things up a little bit, but then have some time for Q&A if you guys have questions um, at, based on everything we've gone through and, and studied. Um, uh, if there's things you want to ask about that, uh, then we'll, we'll be here for that next week, and then, uh, then we'll be done with this. And, and soon after that, we'll be starting up with our, um, going back to our regular Sunday school classes that we had before, before COVID. So I'm not sh exactly sure on the start date on that, yet so uh, but we'll we'll keep you informed it won't be the week right after because we're doing something else I, I believe that next week so yeah I haven't talked to you but am I, is this on yeah I think it's on I'd be willing to take questions on things we haven't covered either oh yeah so. sure if there's something from church history that maybe you already know a little bit about and are confused about but it wasn't something that came up then feel free to ask those questions as well um, so we have our in-house encyclopedia Bubba, to help us with those things. So, <laughs> all right. I want to start this morning by uh, reading a passage out of Colossians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles and you would turn there with me. <clears throat> and this passage of Scripture, you know, goes with, I mean, it really goes with all of what we've been looking at, but it goes again with what we'll be looking at today. Um, and so I want to read this, get this, get our minds thinking about the, the Scriptures here. Colossians chapter 2, I want to look at verses 6 through 8. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
Uh, and this is this passage of scripture sort of sums up the problems that the church has faced over the centuries, uh, as we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, I wanted to start with reading that and, and get our minds wrapped around that, that this is not a new problem, right? The drifting away from the truth is not a new problem in the church. And last week, Bubba talked about the, the period of the Enlightenment in the late 17th and 18th centuries, again, and some of what came out of that, uh, particularly the roots of liberal theology and those who popularized the ideas and thoughts that went along with it. Um, like all the historical people and events that we have talked about throughout our study in church history, these people had a tremendous impact on the church and not uh, for the better. Um, and men like that Bubba mentioned last week, men like Rene Descartes, uh, Immanuel Kant, and Frederick, Frederick, uh, Friedrich, sorry, Schleiermacher. Um, and he talked about two groups, right, the rationalists and the empiricists. So the rationalists who argue that by thinking um, without any connection to experience, a person can come to a true understanding of the world, okay? And the empiricists who said only through interacting with the world, by absorbing it through our senses, can we then bring reason to bear and understand the world, okay? Some, some key words in there are only, right? They're getting away, like Bubba talked about, getting away from revelation, getting away from what God has revealed in the scriptures, uh, moving to what they themselves think is right. And whether it is the Israelites adopting the practices of the pagan nations or, or the Colossians, like we just read about, the Colossians being dragged off by philosophy and empty deceit, um, the rationalists or the empiricists, the problem is always the same. The problem with the church is that there's a constant drift. There's a constant drift away from the anchor of truth. Uh, and like the Israelites did so many times, the church has also forgotten some very, something very important, right? And, and the church has done so many times. It's always the same thing. It's always a departure from the Word of God. And that is really the problem that the church will always face. It's, it's not new. It's been around forever, and it's not going to stop. Um, and that should tell us something. It should tell us that this is a constant battle. It's a constant battle to stay faithful to the Word of God. <clears throat> some person or some group um, always comes along, right? They always come along and say they, they know different or they know better uh, than the Bible, okay? The, the thoughts and feelings of the people begin to be held out as truth instead of what God said. And Romans 1, 21 and 22 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is always the case, right? It's always, we know better, we have something new, we have this special knowledge, the Bible's old, out of date, Christians are out of touch, whatever it might be. It's always a, the desire to get away from what God said, because what God says is convicting, right? We don't, we don't want that. Um, so it's, it's the same. What, what God says is always brought into question, even though, like the Israelites, the church has come back around uh, to the truth after drifting, right? We see that, saw that pattern with the Israelites throughout the, New, the Old Testament. Um, and the church is the same thing. They'll drift away, 
God will raise people up to come back to the scriptures and there will be a resurgence of that and then it drifts away again. It's just kind of always there, this drift. Uh, there's another one around the corner and the battle for the truth uh, is going to continue to need to be fought and won. Um, and so the battle for the truth had to take place over the theological liberalism that came out of the Enlightenment as well, as, as Bubba had talked about. And though we can look at many denominations today and see that they have again abandoned the truth, uh, there was a time when they came together and they stood on the truth of Scripture. Right? It, it hasn't always been the case. And even today, um, though there's a, a major drift in pretty much all denominations, there are always the faithful, right, the people that do remain faithful to the Word of God in, in several different denominations, and that's good because um, God is preserving His church. But it is a battle nonetheless. Um, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, um, and others would, after the, the time that Bubba was talking about last week, they would come together. They would defend the truth of the Bible against the lies from Satan, the lies from the world. Um, and not just lies from the world uh, from outside the church, but from within the church. This stuff crops up from within the church because people within the church buy into the lies of the outside world. They start to meld those things together. And we don't want to do that. Um, you know, Jude, uh, in Jude verses 3 and 4, it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it was going on back then. And it's gone on throughout church history and it's still going on today. And one place where this battle was fought was at Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, which was started in 1812 by Archibald Alexander. He was the first chair of systematic theology there. Instrumental in the defense of scripture there was a professor named Charles Hodge, who published a systematic theology and fought against all the attacks on the truth for more than 50 years. He was there for over 50 years. Uh, he was followed by his son, A.A. A. Hodge, named after the first seminary president, Archibald Alexander. Um, he took over as professor of, professor? That's a new one. professor of systematic theology in 1878 after his father died. And he, like his father, would fight for uh, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Right? They, would, they would fight for the truth of scripture to be held on to. And then after him, uh, in 1887, was Benjamin B. Warfield, who would continue, again, this defense of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And these men would follow that pattern that we've seen throughout church history. As we've gone through and looked at these things, there's this pattern of those who were committed to certain fundamental truths, fundamental scriptural truths, and namely, uh, three in particular, uh, first was the, the Word of God as authoritative and true. Uh, that Christians should live by the very Word of God found only in Scripture. That it should guide and govern uh, the Christian worldview. Our thinking should be based on the Word of God. And 
Warfield said, when Paul declares then that every scripture or all scripture is the product of the divine breath, is God breathed, he asserts with as much energy as he could employ that scripture is the product of a specifically divine operation. And he also said the Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Is that the view that you and I have of Scripture? I mean, I think that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Is that our view of the Scriptures? That when I open the pages of Scripture and I read what's said, no matter where I'm reading in there, do I believe that it's the Word of God? Do I believe I can say this is God speaking to me? And we can. We should stand on that truth. Uh, and it's the truth in every, every book, every page of the Bible, not just the red letters. If you have a red letter Bible, you know, some people say, well, those... Red letters are the words of Jesus, and those are more important than the other words. It's not. The whole thing is the words of Jesus. And that's how we should, that's how we should view Scripture, that when I'm reading it, I read a passage of Scripture, and I sit there thinking about that passage of Scripture and meditating on it, studying it. I am hearing the Word of God. I am listening to what He has said, and that's how we should view it. These theologians fought for what the Reformers did, the, the same thing that the reformers did, and, and what many Christians um, had done throughout the church history, when the word of God had been abandoned and by the people of God, they reminded Christians that everything else should be made subject to the Bible, not the other way around. And Warfield also said, <clears throat> I have another quote from him in there, thus in every way possible the church has borne her testimony from the beginning and still in our day to her faith in the divine trustworthiness of her scriptures, in all their affirmations of whatever kind, the church has always believed her scriptures to be the book of God, of which God was in such a sense the author that every one of its affirmations of whatever kind is to be esteemed as the utterance of God of infallible truth and authority. So you can see there this commitment to the authority of scripture. Uh, as we've seen throughout, I mean, we've quoted many different Christians as we've gone through this study, and there's this theme on these people that are coming back to the Word of God, and, and they, they speak almost in the same way, though, of course, throughout history, people talk differently, but they're saying the same thing, that, that we need to look at the Scriptures as authoritative. Um, the second thing they're committed to is the work of God in salvation. They're committed to the work of God in salvation. That sinful men are saved, um, are justified by God's grace through faith, apart from works, right? Just as the Bible says. They're committed to scriptural teaching on salvation and God's work in that. That the work of God in salvation also includes the finished work of Jesus Christ, right? Not only in his death, but also in his resurrection, and you see, just like the Colossian church experienced in the first century when the word of God is questioned, when um, God himself is questioned, the deity of Christ is questioned. They fought uh, for the truth of the deity of Christ. That's why these words are written in the scriptures, because it was a problem, and they needed to come back to the truth. So I would ask the question here then, what is it that makes sinful people acceptable before God? What, what is it that makes sinful people acceptable before God? <clears throat> okay, Christ. 
There you go. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That's how we are seen as acceptable before God. That's how we are justified before God, with, when the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us through faith. Um, so we also agree, then, if we answer that question that way, we agree with B.B. Warfield, who wrote about our acceptance before God. He said, we have but one Savior, and that one Savior is Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing that we are and nothing that we can do enters in the slightest measure into the ground of our acceptance with God. Jesus did it all. Okay? The third thing that these men were committed to was that God alone is to be worshipped. Okay? God alone is to be worshipped. The triune God, worshipped in spirit and in truth. And truth meaning the Scriptures, not our feelings about life and things and our experiences. The truth of, of the Scriptures. Uh, since the resurrection, the deity of Christ were always, have really always been under attack in, in the abandonment of the truth. Warfield also wrote, Had Christ not risen, we could not believe Him to be what He declared Himself when He made Himself equal with God. But He has risen in the confirmation of all His claims. By it alone, but by it thoroughly, is He manifested as the very Son of God who has come into the world to reconcile the world to Himself. It is the fundamental fact in the Christian's unwavering confidence in all the words of this life. It's a very strong statement that is, um, of course, based purely on the truth of the very words that we find in the Bible. As you, even as you hear that statement, you can hear references to passages of Scripture in there. Um, these are fundamental biblical truths, and as these people fought for these truths, they would ultimately become known as fundamentalists. Yeah, Bubba, you had a comment. Yeah, just to build on your your uh, statement regarding the cyclical nature of the churches and all. Even though for a hundred years Princeton had been a, a bulwark of conservative theology, of biblical theology, uh, as is the nature of things, it too slipped away. And after Warfield died in the 30s, it became split between liberal theologians and conservative theologians and ultimately the conservative theologians would leave, the church, the seminary would split, and the conservatives founded Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, which is still to this day, after almost 100 years, still a, a bastion of, of really strong conservative theology with a lot of great scholars there that are defending the, uh, the Bible. So, but again, it's that, that, that cycle of drift that is evident throughout Scripture and and throughout the history of the church. And it's a call for us to be vigilant mm -hmm. because we can drift. If they can drift, we can drift. And Absolutely. so we, each generation has to be vigilant. That is true. So I mentioned that they would become known as fundamentalists, right? These people that want to adhere to the authority and inerrancy of scripture. Um, but what comes to mind when you hear the word fundamentalist, what comes to mind? Law-keeping, okay. What else? Any other thoughts? The basics, okay. Uh, what was that one? Boring. Boring? Okay, <laughs> sure. 
You know, I, I mean, that's probably why one of the reasons why sort of new things seem so attractive to people, right? We, we find the scriptures boring throughout history, and, and these other things that come along, boy, they seem so fresh and new, and um, yeah, it's a big enticement. Close-minded, close okay? Yeah, you know, it's interesting when we hear that word in our, in our culture, it sort of has a negative connotation, doesn't it? A, a fundamentalist is someone who you'd think, you know, uh, it's, it's a negative, right? It's, it was actually, it is, in, especially in our culture, used as a slight against someone. Uh, to call someone a fundamentalist or to label them basically as an old-fashioned crazy person, right? Um, but is that really what it is? <coughs> in, in, in this time that we're talking about here, that's not what it, what it was. It's not a bunch of crazy people, right? These are, these are people wanting to be faithful to the Word of God, wanting, not wanting to drift, wanting to call out the drift in others and, and in the church and come back to the truth of the Word of God. Uh, now, a person labeled a fundamentalist could be a crazy person, uh, right, who, who, also, who also has strayed from biblical truth. That could be true. But that's not what this started out as. Right? This, this group of people who were Bible-believing Christians, uh, again, they were committed to the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. They're not, well, I mean, you might say they're boring. I, I wouldn't, but, um, but they're certainly not crazy people or all about law-keeping or uh, something like that. The, the rise of fundamentalism was, really was the counter to the theological liberalism that had taken root and flourished in the churches. And by the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, this group would include men like Dwight L. Moody, uh, who lived from 1837 to 1899, C.I. Schofield from 1843 to 1921, and Billy Sunday from 1882 to 1935. Uh, and these men were well known as evangelists in their day. Um, the fundamentalist movement would include different Bible conferences and groups who would create um, official statements or creeds. Again, doing what the church had always tried to do with creeds. Right? When these things come around, it's because there's a drift. There are lies about the Word of God that need to be corrected. And these creeds and statements are ways of saying, here's what the Word of God says, and here's what it means by what it says. This is what we adhere to and what we believe about the Scriptures so that you know what this group or that group believes about something. Um, and so these are very important things, creeds. You know, and they, they, they are a way of clarifying, of safeguarding, and take, taking a stand on biblical principles and doctrines. And they would have to do this because of the major influence of the liberalism in infiltrating the church's teaching and practice, right? It's no small thing. It's not something that's, you know, sort of cornered in one, one church. There's this problem church over here. This stuff is spreading, right? It's, it's getting everywhere. Um, and, you know, coming out of seminaries, right? It's, it's a problem when, you, when the institutions that are training up pastors to go out and preach are 
drifting, what are they turning out? They're turning out men that are drifting and who then take that out to multiple churches and the drift continues in those churches. Um, and so, and we see that problem going on today as well. Uh, it, again, it's a constant fight to stick with the truth. Um, so, one statement, as we were talking about statements or creeds, uh, one of these was made by the Presbyterians in 1910. The General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church decided on five fundamentals, that, that is, uh, fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. One is the inerrancy of Scripture. Sound familiar? Right? The, the virgin birth and deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ's death, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the authenticity of Christ's miracles. Why, why would they have to make a specific written statement saying these things are fundamental doctrines? Right. Yeah, because they're under attack. Yes. Um, well, I haven't mentioned conservative yet, but the liberalism is, is a way of describing, it's um, um, usually what's associated with the drift is liberalism, right? It's, you have what the Word of God says, liberalism brings in other things, like Bubba talked about last week, the rationalists, the empiricists, um, and it, when we talk about it here in this sense, what we're meaning is uh, that they are moving away from the Scriptures, bringing in other things while claiming to be holding to the Scriptures, maybe they're, they're twisting the words of Scripture or changing them altogether, um, ignoring certain portions of it. And that doesn't mean that, um, you know, so-called conservatives never do that or never have a problem with that. But typically when we, we talk about liberalism in this sense, it's a drift away from the Scriptures. It's not a, um, like the title of the lesson is biblical fidelity, right? It's, it's not a... a clinging to the truth of Scripture. It's a sort of reinterpretation or bringing in worldly thoughts and ideas, and that's what we mean by liberalism here in this sense. And Bubba, I don't know if you have any other way of explaining that better. Well, well, first off, I guess maybe I should have made this more clear. When we talk about conservative and liberal uh, theology, even though there is some connection in some ways, it is not a political statement. It is, it is a theological statement. So it is, there is some connection, but again, it's, it's really focusing on, on the view of Scripture and all that flows from that. Are you going to recognize Scripture as your authority or is something else going to be your authority? Is reason going to be your authority? Is your emotion going to be your authority? Or is scripture going to be your authority and if scripture is your authority are you holding it up as a document that is historic you know just floated through history or is it the inerrant word of god right so th i mean that's really what it's going to come down to and and many groups have just to answer your question have strayed away from that and and no longer look to the the bible as the inerrant infallible, inspired word of God, and, and therefore they, they are free to drift in whatever direction they so choose. That's what we mean by liberal theology. Yeah, yeah, that's a good 
a good point to make that we're not talking about a political system. We're talking about theology. We're um, so liberal theology versus say fundamental or fundamental Christian um, conservative theology, um, not political parties. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they they have to write these things out. They have to meet. They have to discuss. They have to talk about scripture. They have to write out these creeds and statements because the very things that they come up with, like you and I might read that and go, virgin birth and deity of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I believe that. Why do they have to write that? Well, it's under attack, right? Just like in the Colossian church, these, this, these things were under attack, and Paul had to write about them and remind people of the deity of Christ. So, and, and clearly throughout history that the drift keeps happening, and then you have to keep coming back, you have to keep making new creeds and these kinds of things because people, it doesn't take long for people to forget. Uh, you can have solid biblical teaching from one generation, and the next generation is adheres to that pretty closely. But by that next generation, it can be, it can be totally gone. Yes? So when you read the Nicene Creed, you'll also see statements about, for example, the virgin birth and deity of Christ. I mean, the whole thing is about the deity of Christ. What the Presbyterians were dealing with in 1910 was the same thing the church was dealing with in 300. So it's the same attacks. It's, it's either going to be the scriptures, it's either going to be the Trinity, or it's going to be the person of Christ. It's one of those three things. There's hardly, I can't think of a deviation from the church throughout history that isn't attacking one of those three things or all of them but it's always going to be one of those three things we have to hold fast on those mm -hmm. right so also in 1910 uh, a Presbyterian man named Lyman Stewart put up the funds for publishing what was called the fundamentals a testimony to the truth and this was sort of a a collection of 90 writings or essays from multiple authors, over 60 authors from different denominations, not even just Presbyterians, but different denominations. And these were put out from a time period of around 1910 to 1915. Um, and they're sort of expansions or further explanations on the five fundamental doctrines that we just talked about. Um, they sought to help fight against the skepticism, the skeptical attacks on Scripture uh, and the truth of Scripture. Um, and as an example, I wanted to read one of those writings found in the fundamentals. And you can, you can hear in it the commitment to biblical truth as of unsurpassed importance in the Christian life. You can hear it in, uh, you can hear in it, a Christian biblical worldview. And so when I read this statement, I want, and I want you to listen for some specific points of truth about the Bible's value and how it's described in this statement. The living word shall continue to be the discerning companion of all who resort to it for the help which is not to be had elsewhere in this world of the dying. In going to the Bible, we never think of ourselves as going back to a book of the distant past to a thing of antiquity, but we go to it as to a book of the present, a living book. And so indeed it is, living in the power of an endless life and able to build us up and to give us an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. 
So what about that? What are some points of truth about the Word of God indicated in that statement? What you, do you see in there? It's living. And what does is, what is the fact that the Scriptures are living not mean? Well, not dead. Yes. They're relevant to today. Okay? Absolutely. It, living... You know, sometimes people take that, even what the scriptures say about itself, that it's living and active, and they take that to mean also it's changing. Living means it grows, right? It becomes something different or can mean something different based on the times or culture. That's not what is meant by that. Um, It is living and active. It is relevant for every generation, for every day. The the truth of the scripture never is... um, never is at a place of having no power in the lives of, of people, right? God's word always has an effect on the hearts and minds of people um, in every generation. Yes? There you go. You open up the Bible. Yes. You read the words in Scripture and they have the ability to do exactly what the, the Bible says the Holy Spirit's going to do with the Word of God, which is convict us, right? Um, and not just convict us, comfort us, you know, empower us. Yes, the, the, the Word of God is a powerful thing. Um, and so um, it doesn't, when we talk about the Bible being living, it does not mean changing in any sense or growing, becoming something different. Um, what else? What else did you hear in that statement about the scriptures? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, all who resort to it for the help which is not to be had elsewhere in this world of the dying. Yeah, it is, it is, and it says, it is the source of discernment, right? It, it answers questions. It gives us wisdom to deal with the lies, to deal with the drift, those kinds of things. And what else about that statement did you see about the scriptures? We see in there that, um, you know, Doug mentioned relevant. Well, what's it relevant to? It's relevant to our lives, to the way we live our lives. Again, it answers questions. It gives us everything we need. The scripture itself says it has everything we need for life and godliness. Um, this, it, we, we hear in there, we see in there, it talks about how it sanctifies. That's what the scripture does for us. It sanctifies. Um, and the people who held to these fundamentals were, were first called fundamentalists in 1920 when Curtis Lee wrote about them in a publication and said, we suggest that those who still cling to the great fundamentals and who mean to do battle royal for the fundamentals shall be called fundamentalists. Uh, should we in the church do battle? Should we in the church fight for the church to stick to the fundamental biblical doctrines? Yes, yeah. 
The answer is yes. Now, not physical fighting, right? Because a group disagrees or says the Bible's not true and they're teaching something else, we don't then go and attack them. Um, and certainly it should start first within every local church. We should be fighting in every local church for the truth of Scripture. Uh, and then the church as a whole should be fighting for the truth of Scripture when those lies come against it. Right? The, the problem is when the, the drift comes and those lies come in and the church doesn't fight against it, it comes in, it grabs on, it takes hold. It starts changing people's thinking. Yes. So if we are to fight for the fundamental truths of the faith, then it would behoove each one of us to know and art be able to articulate the fundamental truths of the faith. So that is a call for each one of us to get out of our comfort zone, to study the word, to read what people have read about it, so that we can do that battle. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> Right, God hasn't told us to go do something that he hasn't given us the power or the ability to do through his Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, it's not something done in our own strength. Um, and anytime we read the scripture, anytime we learn from the scripture, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. He's teaching us. Um, w without the Holy Spirit teaching us, we wouldn't understand. Our, our eyes, without being born again, your eyes wouldn't be open to the truths of scripture. Um, so, praise God that he, that he does that in people's lives, yes. That's right. Yeah, the scripture describes Satan as the father of lies, right? And we can see that in the scripture itself. We can see that from the very beginning. Um, it is something that we have to continually fight against. It is the spiritual warfare that the scriptures talk about. It's, it's always a battle over the truth. Um, and sure, Satan is extremely active in, in lies. That's, he, he traffics in lies, yes. So I, I agree with that. But as an additional warning, when we earlier, when we were reading on the, the early church and we're talking about Tertullian, and he was contending for the truth of the Trinity, he opens his great treatise on it by saying that Satan will promote and defend one aspect of the truth at the expense of the whole truth. So we need to keep that vigilant as well. We need to keep in mind the whole truth of Scripture, not just a part of it, but all of it. Right. It, it's amazing how people or groups can take a, a portion of Scripture and maybe have one part of it right, but twist the rest of it, and we can, we can easily not notice 
Um, that's the whole point of deception, right? You, you don't really see it coming. You don't really recognize it until it's already bitten you. Um, and, and so it's, a, again, a constant vigilance, like you say, a constant battle. Um, and the only way is to keep reading it, keep studying it, to know it, so that when those lies come, though they may sound like the truth, I need to be discerning. I need to be asking myself questions. Is what they're saying about this passage true? Um, and that's, again, a constant, a constant battle. And so, again, like I said, we don't, we don't physically fight, uh, you know, someone that disagrees or someone who claims to be a Christian and they're teaching something false. But we, biblically speaking, we rebuke, we correct, we train with patience. Um, we read earlier in Jude where he called on the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And you can't contend without a struggle. Right? There's, there's an aspect of struggle in this. It's difficult. Um, and so we can't, also we can't contend without correcting error. You know, we, we, there's all these bumper stickers. There's a bumper sticker that says coexist, right? Well, we can coexist with people in the sense of we can be loving towards people and kind towards people, but we can't coexist in the sense that I can say the word of God is the truth and so is that, right? I, we, we can't coexist in that sense. Uh, Christianity is exclusive. It's very exclusive. Um, yeah, you had something? As far as knowing the word and all of that, I mean, we even see that in Scripture. There is, you know, in Acts 17 with the Bereans, they were searching the Scriptures to make sure that what Paul said was true. Mm -hmm. So those elders at that church, they knew the word and could test what was being said because they could foil it again. And what's the word that they're searching? Well, the Old, Old Testament. Testament. <laughs> and, but they knew it cold, and they could tell if Paul himself was telling the truth. So that's what we need to be like. That's our model. Yeah. I didn't no. mean to divert you. I just no, that's, that's good. Um, so yeah, we, we have to contend. Um, and again, that doesn't mean that you're being mean. Right? It doesn't mean that you yell and scream at someone. Uh, we can contend for the truth by having conversations with someone who's maybe teaching something false. We can talk, hey, can we talk about the scriptures? Can we look and see what it says? Here's what it actually says. Uh, and you can have those discussions. You can call on them to, to repent of what they're teaching or believing and come back to the truth of scripture. And you don't have to do it with your fists, right? That's not what we're talking about. Um, but it is nonetheless a battle, and it's hard. You think of it in your own families with maybe people in your families who aren't believers, and you have these discussions with them about Scripture, and they totally disagree, and, and you know. Some of you have that experience of it's tiresome, it's difficult. There, there can be hard feelings um, because you won't bend, because you want to stick to what's said in this book, and they have a big problem with that. Um, and so it's not easy, but we should do so nonetheless. Um, and this is what the, the fundamentalists were doing. Um, and this wasn't the first time, as we've seen, and it won't be the last time that churches need to stand on the truth of God's word in the face of opposition or skepticism, uh, doubt and attacks. Um, a particular battle over this was called the fundamentalist-modernist controversy. 
and that took place in the early 1900s among what were mainline American denominations. What was going on in these denominations was an ideological battle between Bible-believing Christians and the theological liberals. And again, this is a hard-fought battle, and it was especially, I was going to say hardly, but it's not the right way to use that word in this sense, but uh, it it was especially hard fought in the Presbyterian churches. And some of their seminary professors, and Bubba talked about this earlier, they had denied, uh, in terms of Princeton Seminary, these professors had denied the doctrine of biblical inerrancy and were, had drifted, had gone into theological liberalism, and they're removed from their positions, uh, their teaching positions. In 1922, a liberal Baptist minister preached a sermon at First Presbyterian Church in New York titled, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? Well, of course, he was against the fundamentalists, and so his point strongly made was that they should not. They should not win. So he's, he's fighting for this liberal drift. He's, he's fighting to, though he would probably claim he wasn't, he's really fighting to drift away from the truth of Scripture. Um, in 1936, uh, J. Gresham Machen left the Presbyterian Church um, USA, or known as PCUSA, to establish the OPC, or the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, Machen had been a, a professor at Princeton Seminary, but uh, the seminary itself and other professors drifted towards liberalism, and so eventually he left. Uh, he couldn't stay there anymore, and he really was one of the last theological conservatives to, to be at Princeton Seminary. Um, and as also, even aside from just the church, as the public embraced modernism more and more, uh, there are other events that took place in, in the United States, in, in different states, that began to turn public opinion against those who were known as fundamentalists. Uh, in 1925, something called the Scopes Monkey Trial. Um, Scopes is the name of the, the guy who's a substitute biology teacher in, in a high school in Tennessee. And he was put on trial for violating... Tennessee law, I don't know if it's still law to this day, probably not, but by violating Tennessee law when he taught the theory of evolution in a public school. You can see how where things were, legally speaking, that you're not allowed to teach this, and it drifted to, now someone's teaching it, and they're being put on trial for teaching um, the theory of evolution in a public school. Well, things are flipped now, right? Things are are quite different now. Um, And the three-time presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan prosecuted that case. Scopes was found guilty. Okay, so uh, he was found guilty of violating that law, but the trial brought a lot of, because of these high-profile people, brought a lot of attention to what the public viewed as, uh, again, this negative connotation they have about fundamentalists. Um, They looked at their fundamentalist creationist views, and, and they would look at them as if they're out of touch they're, um, you know, they would look at the progress we've made in science as um, proof against creationism, right? Um, and so, again, those who are sticking to what the Word of God says about creation um, are beginning to be seen as out of touch, right? 
we see something different. Our experience says something different. Science is teaching us something different. That doesn't mean that science doesn't discover things and and we, we learn things from science. Absolutely. God invented science, right? And when we discover things, it points us to even more so to our creator. But the drift is and the pattern is that when things are discovered, it's looked at as a, a denial of the creator. Clever, you were going to say something else. No? Um, so this and other things serve to turn American opinion in a negative direction against Christianity. Um, major denominations, like Bubba mentioned earlier, major denominations are split. Uh, fundamentalists would, would leave and start more conservative denominations. They would want to start new denominations that are going back, sticking with the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Um, and by the 1940s, there came about what was called the called New Evangelicalism. And it's a group of Bible-believing Christians who thought that in regard to the fundamentalists, that they're really becoming known just for, for infighting, right? This is, how, this is what they're known for, that and for anti-intellectualism. Um, and I, I think it goes back to what we said, some people said about what we think of when we hear that word fundamentalist. Um, and so there's a negative connotation to this. Um, and they would eventually just be called evangelicals. Um, 1942, the National Association of Evangelicals was established. Uh, and they would, they would affirm most of what the fundamentalists did, um, including the key doctrines that we've mentioned for the most part. Um, and, but one way they differed was that they sought to tone down what they thought about the communication of the fundamentalists, that it was, it was unfriendly. Right? They, they wanted to be more friendly in their sort of communication about Scripture, right? Um, and, of course, one of the most popular and well-known evangelicals ever um, was a preacher named uh, Billy Graham, who came about in the 1950s and 60s. And Billy Graham was raised in fundamentalist circles. But he would be known for partnering with theological liberals and Roman Catholics in his evangelistic crusades. Um, and this ruffled the feathers of the fundamentalists. Right, who th They would move away from him. Uh, but many American evangelicals saw Billy Graham as sort of the spokesman for the whole thing, right? He's the guy. <laughs> um, probably the most well-known at the time. Far-reaching crusades. Um, I don't know the numbers of people that would attend his crusades, but have any of you ever been to, yeah, yeah, a few people have been to Billy Graham crusades. Um, tons and tons of people, right? Extremely far-reaching. Um, but the fundamentalists would disagree with his methods, some of his methods, right? Um, they would disagree in not wanting to partner with those that they felt had, were not adhering to the fundamentals. Um, but he saw um, importance in doing what he did. Uh, so he, he would go a, a different direction from the fundamentals in that sense. And evangelicals would increasingly become involved with American politics in the 1970s and 80s. And it gets to kind of what Mar was talking about a little bit earlier. Um, and, and what Bubba mentioned, that there's sort of a, a connection. 
Um, not because there should be, but that's what, that's what began to take place, right? And I think really, in the sense of the church, it's, it has been in a negative way, right? And this has affected the church's message in the eyes of church members. It's affected the church's message in the eyes of the public. Uh, I think it's, it still affects the church today. There's confusion when we try to mix the church with political affiliation, parties. Um, there's confusion. And that doesn't mean that as Christians we have no, uh, nothing to say about political things in our, in our country, in particular in our country, because of the freedoms we have and the ability to vote that we have and all that. But our, as Christians, our ideas, our worldview that should inform our voting should be based on the Scripture. Um, not a, not a, a particular party, but um, what does the Scripture say about how I should vote? Right? It doesn't say, go vote this way. Uh, but we look at what's going on, what the world is doing and saying, and we try to make the best decisions we can based on the Scriptures. Um, and so, but I think for the, the world that sees the church as a, a political movement more and more, that's not a good thing, right? Because the church is being used for those purposes, and what's not happening is that the truth of the Word of God is coming out. What's not happening is that the gospel is being spread, um, so we don't want to be used in that, in that sense. We do need Christians to vote, for sure. Um, and the fact is, most Christian denominations have, have, have again drifted from the Bible, even from this time period that we're talking about. Um, and again, that doesn't mean that there are not some faithful groups. Um, even within certain denominations, where the, whereas the denomination as a whole has drifted, there are individual local churches in that denomination who are remaining faithful to the Word of God. And they're, I think Bubba mentioned it last week, increasingly a, a minority, but um, we should not believe that any particular denomination that we're a part of or may be a part of is always going to remain faithful because we can look at history and we can see the pattern of drift. It, we can see that it's not something we can just say, oh, we fought this battle and won, therefore I can sit back and I don't have to pay attention anymore. Right? We, we always have to be vigilant because the attacks are always there and they're always going to keep coming. Um, so we have to recognize and learn from church history that drifting from or abandoning the Bible as authoritative in the life of the church and in your own personal life is deadly. Now, we can't drift from the Word of God. Um, it is the on-again, off-again pattern of Christians and churches to drift when they don't preach and teach the Word of God as the truth for, for our lives. Um, biblical fidelity is, is the key. And the world and many within the church who embrace the ideas of the world will continue to twist and misuse the Scriptures, and we have to be able to recognize that. Um, we must remain faithful and continue to contend in our day Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And again, it's not unloving to fight for truth over lies. It's not unloving to call out sin and to call Christians to submit to the word of God. It, it is actually the most loving thing we can do for one another and for other people is to, is to point out what the scripture says about what is good, what is evil, um, and what it, what it means to be saved and, and 
justified before God. Um, if, if Scripture changes based on culture or feelings or experiences, then we can't trust it. We really can't trust it if, if it is a changing document, if it is a, a work that changes with the cultural leanings. Then we, we really can't trust it. But we can trust it because it doesn't change. You know, Psalm 119, I'll end with this. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Okay, that is what the Word of God says about the Word of God, and we can trust it. Um, so, so I would call on us um, as a church, a local church, and as a Christian, global Christian community that we should be fighting for the truth of Scripture always. Okay, let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for, um, again, for all these people that have come before us and fought hard battles. And um, Lord, I thank you that when the battles come, and they will, that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. These, all the attacks on Scripture, all the attacks on your Son have been there before. And your word makes it clear who you are. The word makes it clear how we are to be saved. And it's only through Christ. And we can absolutely trust your, your word. I pray you would reinforce that in our thinking. Lord, help us to be vigilant. We want to praise you, Lord, that as was mentioned earlier, we don't do this in our own strength. We thank you for your indwelling spirit that empowers us not only to hear and understand your word, but to live it out. We want to do so for your glory because you are worthy. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.